Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome back, Carlos. It's always great to be here. It's good to hear from you again. And I've been waiting with anticipation. Had a great time with our last episode, the first part on St. Teresa of Avila. We talked about her life, an amazing life, uh, incredible, including family secrets and scandals and the possibility that she, we may have never had heard of her. And if you haven't listened to our previous episode, I highly recommend you tune it in and learn about Teresa's life because that'll give you some background into what we're going to talk about today. And also... In our show notes, you'll find a link where you can get a copy of Carlos's book on St. Teresa of Avila. On this episode, we're going to talk about her actual mystical experiences. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about it? Well, Teresa of Avila reflects so many different strands of the Christian mystical tradition. They're all tightly wound each other. If you try to think of it as strands on a rope, right? And it's a very thick rope made of many different strands. And for this reason, she's very difficult to pigeonhole. But I guess a brief, the briefest possible description of what kind of mysticism she represents is that, you know, she is an affective mystic, she's very much into affection, love, experiencing the love of God, and also a visionary. She had many visions, uh, sometimes those visions in the early stages of her mystical quest, some of those visions got her into trouble. And we'll get there in a few minutes. So she's effective. She's a visionary. And she's also very much an ecstatic. She, she goes into ecstasies. And very interesting things happen during those ecstasies, too. We'll get to that soon enough. And um, she also embodies mystical experience. She's very she's a very physical mystic, right? And and we'll get to that too in a, in a few minutes. So, I better stop there because I'm going to keep going over all the other strands that we can find in her. So, affective, visionary, ecstatic. And she's a very physical mystic. Well, let me ask you this. How old was she when she started like when in her life did these visions begin? or these well, you know, mystical like, experiences begin she was middle-aged she was in her 40s when all of this started and uh, you know she had been a nun she had been in a convent since she was a teenager uh, except for the time off from the convent when when she was very ill and and almost died she had spent so much of her life in a convent you know praying all day going through all the required hours of prayer that she had to observe so all of a sudden, uh, in her 40s, you know, those books that we mentioned in the last podcast that, that she got, some of them she got from an uncle of hers uh, when she was very sick. They had an effect on her. And she began to practice the methods of prayer suggested in those books. And we talked about this last time, too. She began to practice, and you know, these are Spanish terms, of course, recogimiento, sort of a gathering in of herself, kind of going deeply in, you know, not up 
to heaven, not up in a spatial sense, going up, but going in, gathering your senses, concentrating on prayer, and especially trying to have a kind of prayer that is more like a conversation than a recitation of set prayers, like the Our Father or, or the Hail Mary, right? And she would say later in life that, you know, this, this kind of quiet prayer, it's like having a conversation with a good friend. And in the prayer of quiet, the higher reaches, right? You basically stop praying God prays in you and through you. There's also another Spanish term, which is very uh, close to one of the teachings of Meister Eckhart. Dejamiento. Dejar is to leave something behind or leave it alone. Deja eso. Dejamiento is what Eckhart in German called uh, gelassenheit, letting go, letting be, you know, having no attachment to physical things. So she is, through several generations, a disciple of Meister Eckhart. Her first ecstasy, however, and this is very, very Catholic, and, and we have to keep in mind that she, she lived when the Protestant Reformation was taking off. She was born in 1515, and the Protestant Reformation began in 1517. So basically her whole conscious life, uh, she knew about Protestants, and she knew that Protestants didn't like religious images. But at the convent of the Incarnation, there was an image of the recently scourged Christ, small image, and it had three mirrors behind it so that you could see the wounds on Jesus's back. And she was praying before this image and meditating on the passion of Christ, which is another method that she found in these books that were being printed in Spanish for the first time in her lifetime very common method of meditation, which, by the way, was very central also to Ignatius Loyola. Put yourself in the place of someone in the first century. Be there. Be there at Jesus's passion and crucifixion. And while she was doing this, she had her first mystical ecstasy. So it's a very anti-Protestant kind of mystical ecstasy, you know, brought about by venerating an image and meditating on what it represents. But what, what do we mean by going into ecstasy? You know, we go back to one of our earlier podcasts, you know, mysticism is all about crossing over into another dimension, the spiritual dimension, and, and not actually experiencing things with your logical brain. And that's what she describes this first experience as. And from there on, boy, she kept having visions. Jesus would appear to her. And this is also when her body began to be affected by these ecstasies. And she describes the intense physicality of these ecstasies in, in very graphic ways. For instance, I'm quoting here, with a very great and sweet delight, the soul feels that it is fainting away almost completely in a kind of swoon. It begins to lose breath and all bodily strength. It can't even wiggle the hands without great pain. The eyes close involuntarily, or if they remain open, they can hardly see anything. And if it tries to read, it can hardly spell out a single letter or recognize it. It hears, but cannot understand what it hears. It can apprehend nothing with the senses. Speaking, 
is impossible, for it cannot bring itself to form a single word, and even if it could, it would not find sufficient strength to pronounce it, for all external strength vanishes while the strength of the soul increases so that it may better enjoy its bliss. I know that was long, but there's a lot packed in there that I think can give our listeners a real feel for this physicality of her ecstasies. And she does describe it as, you know, in English translation, bliss is, is pretty accurate. So in her experiences, actually what she does is that she describes what's going on in both soul and body and the relationship that the soul has to the body is changed by these ecstasies but keep in mind um, let me go back to that quote one passage speaking is impossible for it the soul cannot bring itself to form a single word this is wordless kind of ecstasy it's not rational but in her autobiography she reminds her readers who as she was writing it, she was writing for men who were judging her and could condemn her, right? So she has to be very careful. But this is what, what uh, drives some scholars somewhat impatient, makes them impatient. She's constantly reminding the readers that she does not have a university degree. She is not a bona fide theologian. So here's the kind of passage that one scholar, Spanish scholar, said, is Teresa's gracioso desorden, her gracious disorder. And I'm quoting now. She says, saying this to the reader, I would like, with the help of God, to be able to describe the difference between union and rapture or elevation or what they call flight of the spirit or transport, which are all one. I mean, all these different names refer to the same thing, which is also called ecstasy and some of these terms are difficult to translate for our listeners who understand spanish you know what is union union what is rapture arrobamiento what is elevation elevamiento flight of the spirit vuelo del espíritu what gets translated in english as transport in spanish is arrebatamiento <laughs> and ecstasy is estasy so those are technical terms, but she's saying here in this passage, oh, you know, these are different terms, all for the same thing. But then some pages later, she will tell you what the difference is between each of these. So there's this kind of disorderly science, mystical science that she's trying to describe, which uh, sometimes it's very hard to pin down. It seems that St. Teresa is one of the few mystics that we've gone over on on the show that is able to maybe not describe it perfectly or, or because she does say there are no words but she does get pretty granular in in describing what she's feeling both physically and spiritually yes and you know she is very keen on always somehow trying to explain what happens to the body what happens to the soul and what the relationship is in these experiences between body and soul and you know towards the end of this podcast when we get to her death we'll see how how this is something that she carries through her entire life even into the moment of death it's it's really remarkable and she is in this sense not only being very um personal in the sense that she's revealing something about herself 
that happens to her. But the way that she writes about it, it's as if she is, that's why I, I used the term mystical science before, just a few minutes ago. She's very scientific in the sense that she's a almost a detached observer of herself after these events. So give us one of those examples where she gets into a deep description. Well, she, like Catherine of Siena, uh, she will eventually have a mystical marriage, mystical espousal with Christ. She's also, you know, she's very Christ-centered, Christ-focused. She's very Christocentric. More often than not, the God she encounters is the incarnate Christ. Christ Jesus, Christ the man. And there's, a again, a physicality to it that is very intense. And in her mystical marriage, they exchange hearts with each other. And I am totally yours, and you are totally mine. But, you know, it's very spiritual. But there's a physicality to it because she, you know, describes seeing Christ. So it's not like she sees a light or or senses a force or a figure that she can't describe she actually sees a man yes a person of christ yes he does standing before her that's amazing yes. yes and that and you know he shows up for the of course for the, for the wedding the groom shows up physically and actually this is not what i'm about to cover does not speak to the issue of how uh, detailed she can be i'll come back to that but the fact that she kept seeing Christ really disturbed all her confessors. And again, here we, we see many things at play, right? We see the issue of church authority. She's only a nun. She is being closely watched by priests to whom she confesses all her sins. And she keeps telling the priests, you know, Jesus shows up and I see him. And for a fairly long time, her confessors, because she had several in succession, tell her, you know, that's not Christ, that's that's the devil. You're not seeing Christ. You can't see Christ. That's the devil pretending to be Christ. And and then they quote Saint Paul, you know, because the devil can transform himself into an angel of light, whatever. Anyway, it's a really funny story. What happens is that one of her confessors, finally, you can't take it anymore, says, I'm telling you, that's the devil. Next time that Jesus shows up, why don't you give him the fig? Which is an obscene gesture like giving someone the middle finger. Very obscene gesture. Because that in the monastic tradition, since the devil is so evil and so awful and so crude, you have to deal with him on his own terms. So Jesus shows up and Teresa, she describes all this, right? We have to rely on her description and, and you know, accept or not accept that this actually happened but as a narrative it tells you a lot about her jesus shows up and she extends her hand and gives him the fig which is you know putting your thumb between your index finger and your middle finger and she then says that jesus response was to thank her oh thank you thank you for being so obedient i am so glad that you're doing what your confessor told you but go and tell him, I am not the devil. <laughs> and she does. And eventually when she gets a, a younger confessor who accepts all this, a, a Jesuit, he, he very kindly says to her, 
you know, that that is Jesus appearing to you. I'm convinced it's Jesus. So just, you know, go with it. And she goes with it. And she ends up having the spiritual espousals. But that's at a much higher level. In, in the autobiography, she doesn't deal with different levels of experience systematically. But in another book of hers, she does. And, and that book is known as The Interior Castle. The full title in Spanish is Libro de las Moradas del Castillo Interior. The book of basic moradas is, is rooms in the interior castle. What does that mean? Well, it means that her whole mystical path has been going inside herself. She describes the human self metaphorically as a castle with many, many different rooms. Taking a cue from the gospel passage, in my father's house, there are many mansions. And at the very center, in the most innermost room of that castle, one finds God. And she describes him as a, a sparkling diamond at the very center. But you go through different levels, seven different levels. And she explains that all in the interior castle. Before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, going back a couple of minutes when you mentioned she was very Christ-centered and, and her visions were, were mainly of Christ. Was that just exclusively Christ or did she ever see the Father? Any Did she get any insight in, in terms of the Trinity? Oh, yes, yeah, she, she certainly does. And uh, it's very, um, very much a reflection of her personality, how she says it. Because after repeatedly saying, Oh, look, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I'm just a dumb little little woman. And please, you know, I, I can't really explain it to you. But uh, by the way, uh, you know, I, 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 I understood the Trinity. Not rationally, but I was there with the Trinity. And it's indescribable. <laughs> so no insight on the Trinity from St. Teresa. Well, the, the very definition of the Trinity is that whatever insight you have is indescribable because God is a being so far more complex than human beings who can be three in one. And Jesus can be human and divine at the same time. And, it, you know, when artists try to dis depict her intense experience of the Trinity, of course, they resort to traditional Christian iconography. And what you usually see is Teresa kneeling before Jesus, the father depicted as an older man, and the dove of the Holy Spirit suspended between father and son. But that doesn't, that doesn't give you any kind of sense. It's a metaphorical, graphic description of something that cannot be described. Now, you mentioned that a lot of her ecstasies were very physical. What type of physical effects did they have on her? Well, for one thing, in some of these ecstasies, she would just basically freeze up in whatever position she was. And there's actually a medical term for this kind of seizure. It's known as a cataleptic seizure, which is that you, you sort of just freeze up and if somebody tries to move, let's say, your arm, it's so stiff that you, you know, nobody can move your arm or change your position. And you are totally senseless. You can't sense anything. So we, 
don't have accounts of this with Teresa, but we do with other saints who went to the same kinds of ecstasies, they're, they're pricked with pins and they don't respond. Candles are held up real close to their eyes and they don't even close their eyes. Or in the case of one mystic, this is Joseph of Cupertino. He went into ecstasy with his eyes open and a fly landed on his eye and it stayed there. He, he didn't bat an eyelash, literally. So that's the physical part of it. She says that afterwards, when you come out of these ecstasies, your body hurts, your every joint hurts. And she says, if you try to resist it, it'll hurt even more when you get out of it. Her joints hurt so much as she felt as if she had been pulled apart. And for days, it hurt her to pick up the quill with which she was writing as a result of this cataleptic ecstasy. And I don't think it's wrong to use a medical term for it because what is described is precisely the same thing that is described in medical literature for people who have cataleptic seizures. But the difference being that in Teresa's case, during some of these seizures or ecstasies, she would go up in the air, she would levitate. And she started to ask the sisters, her fellow nuns, whenever this happens, please try to hold me down. Please try to hold me down. And she herself, when she felt this coming on, would grab uh, anything she could to not go up. But she would go up anyway. And no one could pull her down. So there were actual witnesses to her oh, levitation. Yes, yes, there are many witnesses. And uh, most of the witness accounts would be recorded during the process of her beatification and canonization. Oh, yeah, there are just so many different accounts of it. It's... Uh, but why why would she try to resist she tried to resist because and we we won't have enough time to get into this levitation did not only happen to good holy people levitation could also be judged to be demonic and she was so afraid you know just as her confessors were telling her she wasn't seeing jesus she was seeing the devil that these these levitations of hers would cause trouble but uh, the fact is, she went up constantly. And there's one levitation described in the canonization inquest, which is kind of funny because she was in the kitchen cooking and she was using the last little bit of olive oil that, that the convent had. And she was frying some eggs in olive oil and up she went while cooking. And nuns are trying to pull her down, but they're, they're, they're afraid. She still has that frying pan in her hand. And they're, they're afraid that precious little amount of oil they have left is going to spill on the ground. Or maybe the skillet is going to bonk them in, on the head. And um, it's described so kind of matter-of-factly and so graphically that I think it lends credibility to the accounts. But she begged God to stop it. Please stop it. Please stop it. Why are you doing this to me? What's the purpose of these levitations anyway? And um, they stopped. I recently found that there's a kind of a problem dating when they stopped, but that's neither here nor there. When um, a much younger Carmelite monk we will get to uh, eventually, John of the Cross, came to visit one day, and they were talking to each other across the grill 
G-R-I-L-L-E, the grill through which the nuns spoke to the outside world. She was on one side, he was on the other. They both levitated together while they were discussing the Trinity. And John of the Cross, when he went up, he was sitting in a chair, and the chair went up with him. And there are various uh, artistic renderings of this double levitation, which is very rare. So resisting this, impossible and very painful. And then she described it this way. She said, you feel this great force coming under you and pushing you up, which is irresistible. And then she said, the soul is shot out of the body like a bullet from a gun so quickly that the body has to follow. So if we just pause for a second, the interior castle is all about going in, right? You go in, you find God within you. But she also has this very spatial dimension to these ecstasies where she levitates because she goes up towards heaven. Her soul goes up towards heaven and the soul, the body has to follow behind her. And these experiences are all part of the journey she describes in the interior castle. And in the autobiography, they're described in, in great detail. Now, so far, all of the ecstasies we've spoken about with St. Teresa have have had a physicality to them, as you mentioned, her soul being carried up to heaven and the body following. Did she ever have any what we would describe today as out-of-body experiences uh, in during her ecstasies? Well, all the ecstasies are, you know, literally out of body because as she describes uh, in that passage I read before about the body kind of just almost literally dying away, your senses being incapable of doing anything, your your body is in some kind of dormant state and you, your soul, you're out of it. But at, also simultaneously at the same time, you're aware of what's happening to your body. And it's all blissful and painful at the same time. So here we are in the realm of paradox again, right? She is very graphic about the way in which the body reacts to these spiritual realities. And ultimately, you know, she's not a philosopher. She's not a theologian. She keeps reminding you in the autobiography and in all her other texts too. She'll tell you she can't explain it, but actually she does explain quite a bit in detail about the effects that these spiritual ecstasies have on her body. Now, you mentioned she would feel soreness. She felt like her body had been taken apart and, you know, almost as if you had run a marathon and how you feel the next day, uh, your body being put through that. But did she have any physical remnants such as you know, a scar or a broken bone or, or no. anything like that? Did she ever experience anything like that? No, no, she no, she didn't receive the stigmata, which is, you know, a, a very rare mystical gift. She didn't get the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. But she did have visions in which she actually felt an enormous amount of physical pain. And one of these visions, known as the transverberation, is fairly strange because... What happened was that as she was praying, an angel shows up and he's holding a weapon in his hand. The Spanish word she uses for it is dardo. Now, dardo in the 16th century 
was something about halfway between an arrow and a spear. So like a short spear. And here I'm going to read from her description of this. This angel, she says, he thrust this dart, the dardo, through my heart. And at times it seemed to reach down to my very entrails. When he pulled it out, it made me feel as if I were being disemboweled. And this left me totally aflame with the love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan and a sweetness so excessive that it made me wish it would never end. So, you know, how's that for a coincidence of opposites, pain and bliss simultaneously? But this wounding, right, is purely spiritual. It doesn't leave a hole in her chest. Uh, she's not scarred by it. But the pain, very, very real. And that's a very strange vision. And it has been, perhaps of all her visions, the one most frequently painted or sculpted. And the most famous of these images was Italian artist Gian Lorenzo Bernini, who in marble captured this experience with such artistry that his image, his marble image, which is in a church in Rome, if you look up St. Teresa and Google St. Teresa transverberation, most of the images you'll get are Bernini's portrayal of this. I've seen that image and it is quite emotional, very, very striking when you see it. I finally went to see it actually uh, exactly 10 years ago in 2013 uh, with my older son. And I walked into that chapel where the, the statue was on display as part of an altar, an altar for a very important Roman family, the Cornaro family. It's where they're all buried. They're the ones who paid for it. <laughs> I was surprised by how small it was. I, I had always imagined it was life-size, but it's, it's smaller than life-size. It, it sits there. You can walk into that church in Rome anytime you want. No admission fee. And, and there it is, as is common in some European churches. If you want better light on it, they have a little box where if you drop a coin, <laughs> a light turns on for a little while so you can see it better. You know, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. Having to pay to see artistic rendition of a mystical ecstasy. So, you know, she has angels. The, the thing is that I think also reflective of her Christocentrism is that the Virgin Mary is not very much a focus of her mystical experiences, although she is part of it, but it's Christ who's up and center. But then you have this angel who shows up with a small spear, very peculiar. Was that the only angel that she ever described in her ecstasies? Well, uh, you know, she doesn't describe angels, but she does say, you know, in this very description of known as the transverberation, that she immediately recognized them as a seraph, which means, yeah, she saw angels frequently and she got so good at distinguishing between them that she knew that the rank of this one who showed up. And she also saw devils. And that's why she was so upset when the confessors were telling her that visions of Jesus were demonic because, you know, she kept saying, but I know the real ones. <laughs> but she fought them off with holy water and crucifixes. And uh, she says very, very uh, proudly that, yes, holy water 
is the best thing. Oh, it's the best thing ever because it's blessed by Holy Mother Church, and that's why the devils hate it so much. Did she ever describe those encounters with, with the devil? Oh, yeah. Uh, she thought they were, you know, they're horrific beings. They're, they're just ugly. And um, she called them in Spanish, patillas. That was her name for the devil, patillas. But it doesn't mean sideburns as it does in Cuban Spanish. <laughs> it means little cloven hooves, like a goat. Small feet, like a goat. Patillas. She also had one vision early on, which is perhaps one of her most modern, completely modern. And it's she had a vision of hell. But her hell that she went to was not this wide open space, you know, with flames and devils and, and, and people being tortured real close to each other or being pressed against each other. No, it was a tiny little cavity in this awful, stinking, muddy passageway. And it was a, like basically a hole in the wall, like a hole into which you would put a microwave oven, right? And it was for her. It was designed especially for her. And in there, she couldn't move. She was like, you know, scrunched up in a fetal position in there. And it was hot and awful. And, you know, there was no devil stabbing her with a pitchfork or anything like that. It was her having to be there for eternity without God that was the full horror. You know, the heat and the suffocation and, and the slime and all this other stuff that she describes in great detail. The worst thing about it was that this was her place for eternity that she deserved. And actually, uh, that was one of her very first set uh, of visions, which scared her tremendously. I mean, who wouldn't it scare yeah. to see something like that? I'm curious. In her visions where she spoke with Christ, did they ever talk about, did he ever explain to her why she was encountering the devil and why she was having these these visions? Did she ever write that, that she got any explanation? There's no, uh, there's no developed demonology in Teresa other than the power of Christ and the power of the church, his church, to always conquer the devil. But no, there's no cosmic explanation of what happened, like you know, no story of how the, the angels fell, the angels who became devils or anything like that, no. And you know, her experiences with Jesus are not uh, prophetic either. You know, He's not telling her what's going to happen in the future. He's not telling her what's happening in the present with the church or giving her instructions, you know, go do this or go do that. They're, they're intense personal bonding experiences rather than, let's say, dictations. There are many mystics who've had visions who, you know, basically get dictated to and they, they take down what, what they're being told. This is not Therese. This is also, I think, something that makes her very modern because this individuality uh, of her hell is unlike anything that I have ever read from the earlier centuries. It might be there. I just have not found anyone dealing with it this way, having this very personal hell. No, Teresa is extremely unique. And, and as I said at the beginning of the previous episode, which was the first part of this two-part series, this is who I was thinking of when you and I were talking about starting this podcast, because she really is 
extremely unique and and there's other there's other mystics that are that are unique as well but for some reason saint teresa just touched me it, it i found that incredibly inspiring and just a great story yeah and you know there are um, legends that grew up around teresa and one of them is her honesty speaks to her honesty with god may she She's levitating as she complains. She's kind of like Abraham in the book of Genesis, you know, bargaining with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Stop doing this to me. Stop it. But there's one legend in particular that when she was out establishing her convents, you know, she was constantly traveling. And travel in the 16th century was very difficult, you know. She was in this carriage, or even it might have been a cart, sometimes with the Spanish, it's, it's hard to tell whether it, you talk, somebody's talking about a cart or a carriage. So the axle broke, and she got thrown into the mud. And it was a very cold, nasty day. And supposedly, here's the legend, she shook her fist at God and said, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. But that quote has been traced to... Um, 14th century German disciple of Meister Eckhart, Henry Suso. But it rings true. It rings true for Teresa. And something else she said, which was also, it's been attributed to her, but also has a much earlier history, is one of the most comforting things that I have encountered in any mystic's writing. And I encountered it with her. She was the first one to say that to me. For anyone who has doubts about what they have done with their life, especially the older you get, the more you think these questions. She said, in the end, we will not be judged by the greatness of our accomplishments, but solely by the love with which we did everything. And she also said, this is definitely straight out of her quill. She said, you know, God walks among the pots and pans which rings true in that story about her levitating with the frying pan in her hand. She said, you can encounter God while doing work in the kitchen. You might even go into ecstasy while cooking. God walks among the pots and pans. You find God in little simple things in daily life. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, the king of Spain commanding armies, or if you're a peasant plowing the field. God is approachable and available to everyone. And it's how you follow the gospel and how you imitate Jesus, loving deeply everyone around you as much as possible. That's what counts. Teresa was definitely very outspoken, and she had incredible visions, seeing Christ, seeing the devil. And all of this is happening during the Spanish Inquisition. And we, we spoke about this in the previous episode, how they were hounding her, that that continued throughout her whole life, didn't it? Yes, it did. And even after she was dead, there, there were uh, especially Dominicans, priests in the Dominican order, denouncing her to the Inquisition. Well, they didn't want her texts published. As a matter of fact, after they were published, they kept asking the Inquisition, ask people to turn them all in and burn them. And this went on and on and on until she was beatified in 1619. Then the accusation ceased. And we know that she was accused because the Inquisition was very good at record keeping. They kept, they kept all the accusations. 
And again, I laugh. I laugh every time I think about this is that, you know, the Inquisition is pretty much like a bureaucracy that can't stop itself. And so they receive these accusations and they say, okay, thank you. And all they do is they file it away. They don't do anything (laughs) because by that time, the Inquisition was no longer hounding her, but there were others who were still after her. Well, she had all these incredible visions, ecstasies, mystical experiences with, with God, but she did a lot of other things too. Well, yeah, she was very active. She, uh, you know, established 17 new convents. And usually every place that she established one of these, there was local opposition because they didn't want any more nuns begging. They already had enough beggars. And she pulled it off. And she was also very good at fundraising, uh, talking important wealthy people into donating houses to turn into convents and so on and so forth. She was very practical. A pragmatic, let's put it that way. She was pragmatic and she was a good, one can say, a good businesswoman because establishing 17 convents requires great business skill, especially when you're being opposed. So she's very active. And this also is a pattern in many Christian mystics is that, you know, they're not locked up in their room constantly in ecstasy, cataleptic ecstasy. They're out doing things, changing the world. And, and, you know, I've had many instances where people have told me, oh, she's, she's not a reformer. She's not doing social work. She's just making more convents. But that's, that's a way of reforming. And what her discalced Carmelite order would go on to do is a great social service. In the 21st century, Catholics, and especially in the United States, tend not to think this way. But these women... They're dedicating their entire lives to praying not for themselves, but for others. And they also get involved in in works of charity in one way or another. And especially in Teresa's Discalced Carmelites, they'll take any girl or young woman who wants to be a nun. Uh, They don't need a dowry. So it actually opened up this whole realm of experience and life to women who were poor. And that's, um, for the 16th century especially, a great accomplishment. Well, you tease us at the beginning and somewhere in the middle there about her experience, what she experienced what when she died. So tell us about Teresa's death. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. There, there are two, two things to consider. One is the facts, the medical facts. And the other is how those facts were interpreted. She died of a hemorrhage. And um, there are various opinions on what caused the hemorrhage, but it it might have been cancer. It might have been a tumor in her uterus, but she basically bled to death. And she did it while she was traveling from one convent to another in 1582. And it took her a few days to bleed out, but it was kind of like a cataleptic seizure again, her death. So it was interpreted as her final mystical ecstasy. And then when um, her hagiographers wrote about her death, and when the canonization inquest asked questions about her death, the interpretation that everyone came up with was that she bled to death because she had the ultimate mystical ecstasy, that her soul was pulled so violently from her body that it just caused it to bleed. So I think it's very interesting 
that her whole life is summed up in the moment of death in this way with people around her interpreting it as a mystical ecstasy, the ultimate mystical ecstasy. But I haven't even, uh, you know, scraped beneath the frost of the tip on, on the iceberg. Teresa's attitude towards death is really something because she complained about being alive. She couldn't wait to be with God forever. And she has a poem in Spanish, beautiful poem, in which the refrain is used repeatedly, me muero porque no muero. How do you translate that? Either I'm dying because I'm not dying, or I'm dying to die, basically. And in this poem, she complains about how awful it is to have to come down from her highs. And what is this prison, she calls her body. What is this prison, these chains that keep me here? When I just want to die, God, me muero porque no muero. It's a beautiful poem, but kind of scary, too. I find it both beautiful and kind of scary. So what happened with, once she passed away, what happened with her body? Uh, her body refused to decompose. <laughs> it's uh, very relatively rare, but one could also say relatively common phenomenon with saints that their bodies refuse to decompose. As a matter of fact, there was a news story this week about a Benedictine nun in Missouri who died in 2019 and her body was just uh, exhumed and she's intact. So this is 2023, another incorruptible body. But Teresa's body emitted a wonderful odor and that's what sort of gave the nuns a clue that something special might be going on in her tomb. She was buried very quickly and they threw stones and lime all over the coffin so that nobody would come to claim her body as a relic. But this wonderful smell clued people in to the fact something was, was going on. And there are numerous exhumations. So for years and years, they keep digging up the body and they keep marveling at how intact it is. And um, not only is it intact, it oozes blood when, when cut. And they start cutting her up because, you know, relics are, are very important in this time period, especially. And she is cut up little bit by little bit, or sometimes an entire limb is taken off. So basically her incorruptibility kind of guaranteed that her body would not remain intact. So there are relics of St. Teresa's body. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, all over the world, too all over the world and not just parts of her body but you know bits of clothing but her arm one of her arms is in avila the rest of her body is in alba de tormes the convent where she died and one of her hands ended up playing a role in 20th century spanish history because this hand you know they, they these relics are not usually displayed openly they're they're encased in some kind of reliquary so during the spanish civil war the communists took over the town of ronda down in southern spain where the nuns the carmelite nuns had teresa's hand and the communists took the reliquary because it was covered in precious stones they didn't know what was in there and they captured it and then um, sometime later 
Francisco Franco's uh, soldiers, the fascists, took over Malaga where this reliquary had been taken. And as soon as Francisco Franco found out that his soldiers had captured Teresa's hand, he asked for it and he never let go of it for the rest of his life. Anywhere he went, the hand went with him. And he even made Teresa an honorary general in the fascist army, which is why in Spain today, Teresa can be a divisive person because of the association that Franco made with uh, Teresa, Catholic Church, and his fascist party. Well, it was no fault of hers. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. No. No, you know, four hundred, you know, four hundred some odd years later, it's it's not her fault. There's a Spanish expert on mysticism who passed away a number of years ago. I got to meet him in 1984, and uh, he tells a story that's kind of chilling, which is uh, for some reason he got called in to see El Generalísimo Francisco Franco, and he went, and he was led into Franco's office, and Franco was seated very close to Teresa's hand. It was on his desk. And he was sipping hot chocolate and signing execution orders. And these things tend not, not, not to belong together. People say that that doesn't belong together. But the sad fact is that our world is so messed up that, well, sometimes the holy plays an ironic role in everybody's life. Well, once again, it's, <laughs> it's no fault of hers. He... No. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the whole storyline is the Nazis believing they can get the Ark of the Covenant and, right. and, <laughs> and unleash the power of God on, on their enemies. Well, this is just the way that things sometimes turn out. There was actually a lot of nasty, very nasty tug of war between the nuns at Avila who wanted the body and the nuns at Alba who had the body. And there were lawsuits, and the case went all the way to Rome. And Rome eventually decided in favor of the nuns at Alba. <clears throat> because the Duke of Alba was one of the most powerful men in Spain. And you can imagine, most of us try not to think of what will happen when we're gone. How those who come after us will think of us, or what they might do with, uh, you know, with us, our property, or even our corpses. <laughs> And no one can ever imagine what's going to happen. And that's an odd lesson, very odd lesson to learn about the physicality of holiness, and the physicality of these mystics who, for all of their spiritual <clears throat> journeying to other dimensions, their bodies play a part in it all, even after they're dead. St. Teresa is definitely iconic in terms of all the mystics that are in church history, because she not only embodied the spiritual part of it, she embodied the physical part of it, her body being incorruptible after dying, the fight over relics, and the nastiness that, that unfortunately can become part of the story, not only after her death and hundreds of years later, but also during her life, during the Inquisition and, and all she went through. But her mystical life, proved to be just as amazing as her regular life that we learned about in the first episode. And I want to suggest to all our listeners that if, if you really want to learn more about St. Teresa, you should really get 
Carlos's book, and there's a link to it in the show notes. So if you're interested in learning in more detail and learning more about not only her personal history, but her mysticism, you could see it there. Carlos, another great episode, another amazing story, another amazing mystic. How, how are you going to top this on the next episode? Well, you know, I think maybe rather than focusing on a specific mystic, kind of following up on some of the things that we've been talking about today is to deal with these physical phenomena of mysticism, levitation, bilocation, stigmata, and the puzzling mysteries that we are presented with in a very physical way, in a very material way, and not just in the lives of these mystics, but as we were just discussing, you know, what, what happens afterwards, because the physical phenomena of mysticism tend to receive relatively little attention. But to me, I think they are just as important as the other spiritual phenomena of mysticism. Yes, I think that's a good topic to get into on our next episode, and it'll likely prepare us for the mystics that we're going to talk about and, and learn about in the future episodes coming up. But thank you again. And I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>